Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley, and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of this podcast. We've got a very special treat for you. Our guest will be later on in the broadcast, hip-hop icon and founder of Public Enemy, Chuck D. But first, we're going to take a look at the ongoing situation and arrests in connection with the Capitol insurrection on January 6th. A lot of people don't know this because it hasn't really been broadcast all that loud, but the riot has resulted in criminal charges being filed against more than 300 people, including a large number of what the government calls far-right extremists. Now, I emphasize the government because many in media flatly refuse to call them white supremacists, far-right extremists, or anything else than a bunch of caring people that wanted to see Donald Trump reinstalled as president. One of the latest people to get busted is a guy named Federico G. Klein. Pay attention to that name, Federico G. Klein. He stands charged with unlawful entry, violent and disorderly conduct, obstructing Congress and law enforcement, and assaulting a police officer with a dangerous weapon. What's significant about Federico G. Klein is that he was a mid-level aide at the State Department. In other words, he was a member of the Trump administration. Not only that, this guy was employed by the State Department at the time, and he had a top-secret security clearance. That's right, a member of the Trump administration with top-secret security clearance now stands charged with invading the Capitol. It's interesting that many of those arrested told authorities they were acting on behalf of Donald Trump and his false claims of having won the 2020 election. Some of them, Proud Boys, QAnon, whoever, seriously thought that Trump would pardon them before he left office. What suckers they were. They probably also thought he'd march with them to the Capitol instead of watching while his son's girlfriend danced to bad disco music. After all, he, not me, he told them he might in fact do that. But of course, he didn't. Be that as it may, this motley assortment, assortment that is of losers charged in the insurrection thus far, at least some of them, thought all would be made right on March 4th, the original inauguration day here in the U.S. They thought Trump would rise up and seize power in a Lazarus-like display of power. The government took the threat of a second insurrection so seriously that they beefed up, and I mean seriously beefed up security in and around the Capitol. Alas, for them, nothing of the kind took place. And when I say them, I'm talking about the people that thought this would be some watershed event on March 4th. You see, the myth of Trump is just that. It's myth. Yet that doesn't stop some people who should know better, and I emphasize should absolutely know better, than to spread myths and foolishness around the election, around the insurrection, around the whole nine yards. They promote bizarre theories about all of it. Aside from right-wing media commentators who get paid well to spread these kinds of stories, and among them that it was Antifa, not right-wing lunatics who stormed the Capitol, there were a number of members of Congress who alleged without a shred of evidence 
that the riot was the work of the left, not the right. What was that old chestnut? Who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? These congressional miscreants include Florida Congressman Matt Gates, Arizona Congressman Paul Gosser, and Alabama Congressman Mo Brooks. They all found safe refuge to push these bogus claims, that is, on right-wing media. That's right. Right-wing media gave them space and air to talk this trash. That was false. Now, we can argue about whether or not they truly believed it was true at the time. Uh, I'm a cynic. I think they were full of crap from the very beginning. None of them had any hard evidence for their assertions, save for a facial recognition analysis by a company that later said the story saying they had identified Antifa at the riot was false. That's right, false. Aside from the fact that a State Department employee not only stormed the Capitol, but allegedly attacked law enforcement, there ought to be some serious questions asked here. Serious questions. Why should elected officials get away with spreading falsehoods as truth? That's a very fundamental question. Why should the Gateses and the Brookses and the rest of these people get away with using right-wing media to promote utter falsehoods? And not just, you know, it was Antifa that uh, uh, were involved in the protests on January 6th, but the whole uh, right-wing trope about the election itself. Why do these people get the space and the air to spread this garbage? Why should their constituents put up with such duplicity? And by the way, I'm not sure, but my guess would be that none of the people I just named, uh, Brooks, Gosser, or Gates, had a great deal of trouble getting reelected in 2020. Uh, I, my guess is that their constituents, uh, while they may not necessarily applaud duplicity, they are ready to believe it. Sadly, one way members of Congress can be held accountable is at the ballot box. Republican gerrymandering, which is done, by the way, by state legislators and state legislatures, that's kept a lot of seats safe. Even so, it's going to be incumbent on those who know better to fight for truth, no matter where it leads. Here are some fundamental truths some people want you to forget. And I'm going to run this by y'all as quickly as I possibly can. But it is important to set these markers. One, Joe Biden won the 2020 presidential election. Two, on January 6, 2021, hundreds of Donald Trump supporters stormed the Capitol in an effort to stop certification of that electoral victory. That's what they said they were getting ready to try and do. Three, more than 300 of those people have been criminally charged thus far. Four, there was no provocation of the rioters by Antifa, Black Lives Matter, or any other left-wing organization. Next, Donald Trump told protesters at the rally preceding the riot that he might march with them to the Capitol. He did not. Next, five people lost their lives during the insurrection. I recite these truths, and there are others that I could go into, uh, you know, at, at some length. But I, I cite these truths because my guess is revisionists in Congress and the media 
will continue to spread lies and distortions to minimize the role they played in fomenting a riot that is virtually unprecedented, I emphasize, unprecedented in U.S. history. I'll go even further, knowing that some people are going to necessarily disagree. All those congressmen and senators who voted not to impeach Donald Trump put their stamp of approval on the events of January 6th, 2021. They will have to live with that particular truth. Now, that's my truth. It's not necessarily theirs. But, you know, and, and a lot of them sat up and said, oh, it was so awful what happened at the Capitol. But they still turned around and voted not to impeach Donald Trump. And they had all kinds of gyrations uh, in, in terms of procedure and this and that and the other uh, for reasons why they wouldn't impeach Trump. They should have done it. They know they should have done it, but they didn't. They'll have to deal with that in the future and in terms of history and in terms of their own individual legacies. Coming up, hardworking people in the United States and the UK are getting the short end of the stick. Want to know how? Stick around. And later, part one of a three-part conversation with PE founder and hip-hop legend Chuck D. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, public enemy number one, and you are listening to The Intersection with my hero, Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, and again, I thank you so much for listening to this episode. What's happening in your world? Is there an issue you'd like me to talk about? Hit me up with a comment on Facebook. You know, we talked a couple of episodes back about the effort to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. Well, it looks like that effort is in dire jeopardy, due in part to the treachery, and I am not mincing words here, the treachery of seven Democrats and one independent member of the United States Senate. A little background is in order here. Originally, senators favoring the increase wanted to make it part of the $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package, which thankfully has passed the Senate. The Senate parliamentarian ruled that that could not happen. Senator Bernie Sanders, to his credit, pressed on anyway and led a group of progressive senators enforcing a vote. If the vote passed, they could then pass the hike in the relief bill through a process known as reconciliation. Instead, it was voted down, 58 to 42. Now, you may ask yourself how Republicans in both houses of Congress managed to stay so united while Democrats always seem to have defections in their ranks with no real seeming consequences. For the record, here are the eight senators who turned their backs on the working poor. Joe Manchin of West Virginia, John Tester of Montana, Gene Shaheen of New Hampshire, Kristen Sinema of Arizona, Margie Hassan of New Hampshire, Angus King, independent from Maine, along with Senators Chris Coons and Tom Carper, both of Delaware, Joe Biden's home state. Now let's take a look at the net worth of these Democratic jackals, courtesy of Ken Klippenstein, a reporter for The Intercept. 
Chris Coons, net worth $10.13 million. Angus King, $9.49 million. Joe Manchin, $7.62 million. Tom Carper, $5.73 million. Gene Shaheen, $3.82 million. John Tester, $3.67 million. Maggie Hassan, $3.47 million. Senator Kristen Sinema's net worth was not available. That's a collective net worth of just over $43 million. And by the way, this is not to let Republicans off the hook. They have no respect or empathy for the working poor anyway. Just another kick in the teeth for the lowest paid men and women in America. And by the way, and I keep seeing this over and over again, and I mentioned it before, but I'm going to mention it again. These tired predictions that raising the minimum wage will cause mass layoffs and crush small business. Well, we dealt with it in a previous episode, and it's a crock. I'll tell you how I see this. Just my opinion. A bunch of well-heeled people, to the tune of $43 million, have decided that the poorest working people in America are not worth $15 an hour four years from now. And if you go back to when they had a raise the last time, it would be 15 years. You can dress it up any way you want it. Say they'll support a lower wage or whatever. It's little more, in my judgment, than the rich soaking the poor. Speaking of which, across the pond in the United Kingdom, we see a different kind of hypocrisy. At the height of the coronavirus pandemic last year, thousands of people came out of their homes throughout the United Kingdom and clapped for the frontline workers of the National Health Service, the NHS. That included the Prime Minister, that included the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. All of these folks went outside their homes and clapped for the carers. The NHS workers worked day and night in hospitals and general practices, putting their own lives at risk. I emphasize putting their own lives at risk to treat people who were tested positive for this deadly disease. In fact, depending on who you believe, between 260 and 600 NHS workers died of COVID last year. And every Thursday, Brits showed their love. Well, you could say now that the bill is coming due. The UK budget has been released, and guess how much of a raise NHS workers are getting, according to this budget proposal? 1%. That's right, 1%. For many workers, that's about £3.65 a week. That's all the government says they can afford. This is the same government that spent $37 billion and counting to create a privately run test, track, and trace system that few Britons believe is functioning properly. This, by the way, is compared to the NHS-run vaccination program that a whopping 80% of UK residents surveyed are happy with. Workers, union and non-union, are rightfully up in arms. They've asked for a 12.5% wage hike. And given the work they did and the risks they took, you'd think Boris Johnson's government would be happy to pay that. But no, they say 1%. 1% is all they can afford. 
I bring both these cases up to show the disdain moneyed interests have for working people. I'm not going to call them working class because that is often misinterpreted. And in the UK, you have people who justify the 1% at the same time they say, well, we poured X number of dollars into the NHS. And of course, the NHS is very prominent in any advertising about the coronavirus pandemic. Save the NHS. Stay home. Don't do this. Don't do that. Save the NHS. But they don't respect the NHS. They don't respect the workers who put their lives on the line. I don't, for the life of me, understand it. Now, consider how much money Americans pay. And this is, again, a situation where you can go back and forth between the U.S. and the U.K. But consider how much money Americans pay in benefits to those who cannot afford the basics in life because the minimum wage has not risen in 11 years. Now consider an NHS frontline worker in England who also has to struggle to make ends meet and thought there would be light at the end of the tunnel. Instead, they are offered 1%. In both cases, the governments of the so-called civilized nations should hang their heads in shame. Sadly, I don't think either will. I'd like to know what you think. Leave a comment on my Facebook page, or you can email me at mark at markreillymedia.com. Mark at markreillymedia.com. Stay with us. Part one of a three-part conversation with hip-hop icon Chuck D is coming up next. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Ryan. Welcome back to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, and again, we thank you for being with us. They've been called the most dangerous band in America. Public Enemy has always been on the cutting edge of hip-hop consciousness. I recently had a chance to have an extended conversation with P.E. founder and hip-hop legend Chuck D. We've had a chance to talk over the years both on and off the air. From Scotland in Edinburgh when we were visiting and Chuck happened to be there getting ready to do a concert, to Denver at the Democratic Convention in 2008. I hope you enjoy part one of my conversation with Chuck D. Chuck, thank you so much, first of all, for being with us. Your latest album is called, What You Gonna Do When The Grid Goes Down? And then Texas happened. Did you feel like a prophet? Uh, Well, and speaking to one of my heroes, who actually, my first album I ever did was dedicated to you and Gary Bird after after the 1986, I was a messenger listening to you guys in the morning and the afternoon on WLIB back in New York. And fast forward to the last album I did in 2020 that went full circle. The thing is, it's like the to say that you're prophetic is I think is it's, it's a little pompous, short. It's it's really like kind of like full of piss and vinegar. <laughs> it's just uh, you're able to see a tree lean 
So when the tree goes down, can you say, oh, you know, I knew the tree was going to go down? No, we saw the tree leaning. We've seen the, the, the crumbling of infrastructures. We've seen the, the kind of ineptitude on, on a lot of those different situations of, of, of local and intergovernment, you know, falling, falling apart. And um, there's a lot of needs in handling a lot of people that have been, especially over the last four years, that have, have, <laughs> that have been diverted with whippings of mass distraction. So I, I, I don't feel prophetic at all. I think it was at, at you know, rather pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask. Long you. answer. No more long answers for me. I'll be short. Mark. No, no, man. You're cool. How is however long it takes you to express yourself? How has the coronavirus pandemic? affected music generally from where you sit? Well, the coronavirus, especially when it comes down to audiences, has, has thrown it into a loop because prior to 2020, the whole notion of performance of art and music was to be in front of people. And a promoter's game is to get a venue or a place or, or a spot uh, or a spot, as they say, and the whole premise is to fill that spot as, with as many pieces of humanity as possible. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that, that totally was thrown out the window. So that area of music was thrown to the side. And that necessarily wasn't great when you're talking about a music industry that had, had seen its record industry gutted out because of uh, I would say malfeasance, some negligence, and also technology. Mm -hmm. So then a lot of things have become top heavy, depending on the live, the live performance and the live venue. And they were only getting bigger too, Mark, because of also technology. It giveth and taketh away. I experienced personally the technology of the LCD screens. Mm -hmm. And also the digital uh, sounds, which made sounds get bigger and bigger, you know, and also the LCD screens made you sit in the back of a stadium and look at something that was on the stage, like looking at your phone in the palm of your hand. So we had all been actually transferred over into the era of screen technologies, whether it's big screen, little screen, digital, you know, frequencies all over the place. And all that was doing, and it was able to bring bigger and bigger, massive crowds into gigantic places where people end up listening to the big speakers and watching the screens anyway. That's so you wipe that out, and you already had a crippled, if, if not barren, record industry. And uh, what you had is a, a decimation of, of the music industry, but it didn't stop creativity. It also uh, made people look at coming together in a virtual sense differently and even better in some cases. Um, I think what 2020 also did, it, it, it was the unofficial ushering of netizens from citizens. We were thrust into a situation before, you know, you're a citizen of a of a, of a nation, you're a citizen of a county or a town or whatever, you know your rules, you know, which are laws, uh, uh, you know how to deal with people, you know how to deal with that society. 
okay, everybody stay in one spot, stay home, and the only way that you're going to communicate, socialize, and then deal with infrastructures is now through your technology and through a screen. So um, unofficially, people were thrust into having to be netizens with no book of how to be a netizen. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you're thrown you into mean. this existence, but you don't know. You don't, you know, there's no, no such thing as net etiquette. You know, mm -hmm. people kind of rude, just kind of like, you know, passing over each other and just doing anything in that world. Um, there's no such thing as net literacy. So yeah, yeah. all of a sudden, you know, you're a netizen because your citizen rights have been revoked for this temporary time, you know? <laughs> and so we've seen that happen in 2020, which affected everything. Yeah, absolutely did. Chuck, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, how has the widespread use of algorithms, you were one of the first people that really jumped on the digital bandwagon. I remember being with you up in Edinburgh and you had a complete sound, you know, complete broadcast studio essentially in your hotel room. How has the use of algorithms affected the music business? Has it been positive? Has it been negative? Uh, I think it's been, it started off positive and then it went into negative because I think a lot of people kind of take things for granted. Um, I think Prince said it best in the in 1999, we says, be on top of your gadget or your gadget and technology will be on top of you. So I think it got to a point where it's, it got to a point of convenience to where the algorithm started wagging the dog, so mm -hmm. to speak. Um, people started looking at data, or, uh, analytics, as being, I guess, our, 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 only, our, only, our only a main reading of where we are as a species or as a, a, a population. And we're, we're measured by numbers. And, mm -hmm. and I just think when it comes down to human beings being measured by binary code, you got a problem. You got what the matrix tried to warn us about, <laughs> you know? You, know you got human, you got humans clamoring the, you know, the, to, to praising machines and you got machines that are being pushed into replacing human beings. So uh, I think the algorithms are, are getting, and, and we're seeing, it's just seeing the beginning of it, Mark. Mm -hmm. uh, you're, you're familiar with deep fakes? I've heard of it. I don't know much oh. about it. I'm not a technology buff, I got to tell you. Well, well, you you don't have to be because I think um, I'm on the cusp beginnings of your, your generation, somewhere on the edges of that. Yeah. As you're, you know, <laughs> and, you, you know, you've been swimming in it for a while, learned how to and live in it and coexist from 60 to, to 80. And um, I, 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 I think that's cool because you understand, you know, those things that kind of satisfy you, how to be happy if your phone goes down, even though you know you might need it. But if you don't have it, you know, you still could be cool and all right. Yeah, I absolutely. think the, 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 the biggest problem, I think, amongst young people is, and what I mean young people, I'm talking 40 and under more, mm -hmm. is, is how to figure out and differentiate your gadget from being a toy and when it is being a tool. I think for, for the generations that are older, we couldn't wait for these times to use them as tools. 
But I think for the last 20 years, you have people who have been born into it and grown up into this. And, yeah. and of course, if you're 10 years old, you have a phone, you're damn right, it's going to be a toy. <laughs> I think that I think the difficulty, Mark, is how do they grow out of this thing of just being their toy into being more of a tool? And as they go into adulthood, then you know that this thing is their 70 percent tool and maybe 30 percent toy. toy. I yeah. think nobody's there teaching them that. But we've seen it right in the past year where you start seeing virtual education uh kids that are now have to learn their studies, you know, online. <laughs> some of the younger ones are quick, quick to acclimate. I think some of their difficulties are just, I have a nine-year-old. The difficulty is, it's like your, your, your 16 hour day could be 13 and 12 hours of screen. Yeah. You get a chance to play, but your play is on screen and your, your school is on screen. So the break that is, is you, you need generational help. You need some basic kind of ethics to pull you out of that. But you got now a 360 de degree surrounding in a society that's coming at you with technology and screens that you have to be dependent on. Yeah. So I think that that is that that will bold to be a, a, a big problem and issue with us. It's like not we understand the screen is attached to us. But when to apply it at best use while you have it, mm -hmm. much less we know that some of the best uses that we know is when to cut it off. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. when to cut it off. Yep. I mean, but I'm telling you, 40 and under, man, it's a hard thing to cut off. No, I know. I believe I got a 24 year old, and it, it's a hard thing to get her to look up from the screen sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I want to ask you something uh, that I saw uh, in an interview that you did, and I wanted to, if you can, to expand on it. You said that young people these days think locally and think globally. And I think what you were trying to say was that there's a whole thing in the middle, you know, about being part of a country or a nation state or whatever, that maybe they're not as deep into as my generation perhaps was into right. What did you mean when you said young people think locally and globally? Well, they're connected globally with the technology. Once again, we go back to the technology talk. Mm -hmm. They might have, you know, they're connected to like-minded people. They might be connected to people might not necessarily look like them or live near them. Mm -hmm. um, that's a good, that's a good and a bad thing. I think it's a, I think it's a good thing when you connect to the people that you're alike. I think it's a bad thing is that you don't, you're not forced to grow with a person that's not like you. Um, you, you know, like, it's almost like when you, when you're on the New York city transit system, you're taking a subway that forced a lot of people in New York to be different at race relations than other people in, in the United States, or especially in the West Coast of LA, who were kind of like coming through their ages and their, from their territories with car culture. Mm. And you got car, even like in Atlanta, you got car culture. So you got your windows, you got your windshield, you got your own apparatus and all that. And you can lock yourself in, in these metal bubbles. Yeah, <laughs> these metal environment for yourself. Right, right. But you're on the subway, up until last year, 
and your cheek and jaw with somebody that not only that you might not know, but based on how they look, you probably don't like how they look. And they're yeah. breathing up on you and stuff like that. And how long how long the New Yorkers going through that? Subway system was built in 1903. Um, my great grandmother moves up from North Carolina, and she could go from Harlem down to Wall Street area where she worked in a, in a hospital for a nickel every day to take her like you know miles upon miles. You have people coming from the Bronx that could go to Lower Manhattan's or go to even even Brooklyn, even though they tried not to ever go to Brooklyn for the Bronx, but <laughs> but they, you know, you had the transit system that brought people together in the human way and looking at each other face to face. So you had they had to deal with each other as human beings. Yes. It wasn't easy. I think today, you know, people don't necessarily now you got a bubble inside a bubble. And People make their own concessions without really seriously knowing somebody, even if they say, oh, they got like-mindedness. So I think the like-mindedness has a beginning. I think it doesn't come to full fruition in this digital age, and especially after what the pandemic has done to keep people socially distanced and apart. You're listening to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley, and it's my pleasure to have on this particular segment, the great Chuck D. Chuck. His nephew. I'm his nephew. I'm Mark Riley's nephew. <laughs> Absolutely, nephew. Um, you've always told people, Chuck, to fight against racism, to fight the power. Do you think more people are hearing you in 2021 than they did in 1989? I think uh, what happened in 2020, I think younger people and young energy turned the page as a tipping point tired of seeing the maybe the older guard or the older narrative saying that things will change and young people especially young black people was like f that you know tired of that and 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 their friends who might have came in different you know shades colors used or whatever like-mindedness in ways culturally or, or or whatever said you know what that 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 uh that Officer Chauvin murder of George Floyd was enough. So we're gonna march on, we're gonna march on our local area and prove a point. We 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 don't have to go further than outside of this town and and address our displeasure in this area. This is gonna make our area understand that there's things that they're gonna have to do in the future that can't be the same old thing. They're yeah. gonna have to come up with new ways. Uh, but they can't fool us with that old way. We keep, you know, older people kept turning the page, turning the page, turning the page and say, damn, well, when are you going to rip the page and burn the book? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm a big fan. Mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a big fan, Mark, that, that, that old heads can't lead young energy. I think our, I think young people and young folk lead young energy and we be there for direction and advice. Oh, I agree with you 100% about that. You can hear part two of my conversation with Chuck D in future podcasts. The executive producer of The Intersection is Miss Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.